Hi, everybody. It's David Mark Young with Blending Bourbon Podcast. Unfortunately, Dixon and I have been doing more blending than podcasting. So we hope you enjoy one of our favorite past episodes of Blending Bourbon. Blending Bourbon is the podcast that takes you beyond the barrel and behind the scenes of the whiskey industry with master blenders Dixon Dedman and David Mark Young. Welcome to another episode of Blending Bourbon. My name is David Mark Young. Normally, I'm joined by my sidekick, who's Dixon Dedman. Uh, Dixon is not here today. Dixon is out doing what Dixon does. He's selling 2XO. Um, he's out on the 2XO Roadshow. So he sends his best, um, and he will be back on the next episode of Blending Bourbon. So, um, unlike a couple episodes back, we won't have to sit here and listen to me ramble on about me and my world. Um, we've got some more interesting uh, dialogue and definitely a very interesting guest. Um, one of my heroes, um, <laughs> someone that, gosh, um, I could sit down and talk with Sherry or listen to Sherry for days and days and days. So I was in Bardstown. Gosh, it's been maybe a month or so ago, a couple weeks back. And um, just by chance, had the great honor of meeting Sherry Moore, who I'm honored to have here with me today. Sherry Moore, welcome to the Bourbon, the Blending Bourbon podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. Oh, gosh. I, and we had a fun weekend Bardstown, didn't we? We did. It was, you know, there was so much there. And I was actually just, just kind of remembering that trip and some of the, you know, there was that event. Um, well, gosh, it seemed like there were just multiple events. And then we ended up at the Volstead, where, which is a, a small bar, lounge, speakeasy, if you will. And they have the wall, the 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 distillers wall, I think, yes. or where you know if I, heroes of mine were uh, have written their name, signed their name. I just saw somebody the other day had a post, and they were, I think it was, uh, oh gosh, I forget who it was, but uh, master distiller somewhere, and he was signing his name, and you put your name up there, and I think the years I'll, we'll have to attach that that video i have video of that and then i too that was what was such an yes. honor for me for me to be invited to put my name up there with yours and some of those other great folks it was a, a great huge honor and have yet to share that video out so this is this is actually good timing yeah we'll have to attach that video to, to well you know the funny thing with my background at tennessee whiskey i wasn't sure they were gonna let me ride on the wall right yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, they don't they don't use that that word too much. Tennessee <laughs> no. whiskey, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, I laugh about it, but I love the pride Kentucky has in their bourbon. I agree. Yeah, you know, I always, love that. Yeah, I get in there, you know, and and I'll you know being in Nebraska, I'll talk about um, you know some of the great things that we're doing here in Nebraska, and I'm always reminded that the best bourbon is made there in Kentucky, and I don't argue that. Um, it, Kentucky makes you know ninety five percent of the world's bourbon, 
something like that. And uh, but there are other whiskeys. There are other great whiskeys yes. around the world, including bourbons in in the country. Um, but gosh, where where do we start? How about you start with your background? Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Yeah. Well, I, I sometimes I tell people I I say that my career started in whiskey with one phone call. My great grandmother, she lived in Lynchburg and she served meals for the Jack Daniel uh, tourists. Okay. And she wanted me to live with her, and I said, "Well, I would if I could get a job because I lived about twenty miles away in the country, or fifteen miles." And I said, "If I could get a job." And she called Jack Daniels and said, I want a job for my great granddaughter so she can live with me. <laughs> and so I, I was 18. Okay. So I worked my way through college, working at the visitor center at Jack Daniels. Uh, when I was 18, I did the summers and weekends and lived with her at the boarding house. They call it a boarding house. So if anybody looks it up, it's this Mary Bobo boarding house. A lot of visitors to the distillery at Jack Daniels will come there for uh, lunch. So that's how I got in. So I didn't fill out a job application. Okay. Had no resume. I'm 18. I just graduated from high school. No resume. So I worked my four years through college. I had a chemistry degree. Wow. And then I called the plant manager secretary because Jack Daniels didn't have an HR department in 1975. Okay. And uh, well, I started in 1975. I graduated from college in 79 and no HR department. I called the plant manager's secretary and I said, I think I want to work here if y'all have got a job. About two weeks later, she called and she goes, Now, what's your major in? And I explained it. And two weeks later, I got a phone call to start and I started in quality control. So uh, I can still, I'm 66 and I've never done a job application. I've always, yeah. <laughs> so that's my fun part. So I started there uh, at the quality control in 79. And the one thing about the quality control is you kind of get your finger in all departments. So I rotated between the distillery and taking aged whiskey samples. So I spent several years there. And the one thing about coming into a company like Jack Daniels in the late 70s and early 80s is I'm going to say our average seniority was 30 to 35 years. Okay. So I worked with people that had, a, they might not had formal education, but they knew what the pump was supposed to sound like. They knew what a warehouse was supposed to sound like. Yeah. So I feel like I got such a good education like that. But I also being in quality control, worked with Brown Foreman Research and Development. So okay. Lincoln Henderson that started Angels Envy. I got to work with him. So I was in between these people with no formal education, but I was also working with people with PhDs and masters in science. So I think I just was at the right place at the right time to get this education on a very technically sound method with R&D, but all the institutional knowledge and years of experience from people that might not have finished eighth grade. Right. But they knew how to make good whiskey. So sure. I, I feel like that was fortunate. I also, when I started the uh, government, of course, they were ATF then. Now they're TTB. Right. They were on site. So I learned uh, 
to proof with a hydrometer and make the calculations with the uh, government men. And they would test me. They would come in and they'd go, here are these numbers. I want to see you do these calculations. Nice. So I feel like I got such a good foundation. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, a little side note, this was in uh, 1978. Uh, it was the first year that they uh, had 100,000 visitors. And so now you hear, hear a lot about the tourism, but that was one of the things that was done at JAT early on. Okay. was to invite people there. And I think that they realized that when people understood the process of making whiskey, they would appreciate it when they had that drink. Right, right. So I love that all the distilleries now are putting so much effort into the home place. Okay. And we are becoming the Napa Valley in yeah. Tennessee and Kentucky and different places. I think people are fascinated with the process. And it's important, just like this podcast, when people understand what goes into making whiskey, when they come to a place and see it and they get to experience those smells. Oh, yeah. It makes your whiskey taste better. It makes your bourbon taste better. Oh, I just think it's, uh, I just wanted to, I'll just reemphasize, I love the consumers coming yeah. and learning and getting to experience what it's like to walk in a barrel warehouse and that smell. Do you not love that? I love that. Yeah, that's uh, you know I'm I always say I'm I'm a fanboy of all the things you know distilleries, um, you know going in rick houses. Yeah, I love that smell. I love the the atmosphere. It's I get as excited today as I did years ago before I even got into this. Yeah. Oh, and if you can get to watch a barrel being dumped, there's something about scent. Is that not the prettiest color in the world? Absolutely. Yep. I've, uh, I've got some slow motion videos. <laughs> it's liquid gold coming out of that barrel. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. And even yes. hands on, you know, thief and whiskey yes. from a barrel. It, it, it is. It's such a well, good experience. Well, a little more about my career. So I, that's kind of the foundation of it. Uh, one of my favorite compliments is one of the uh, older guys at the distillery. He came up to me and he said, excuse my language, but he goes, he said, somebody just told the biggest damn lie. And I said, what's that? And he said, they said you've been to college. And I told him, hell no, she ain't been to college. She's got common sense. <laughs> and so that was a compliment to me because I felt like I was accepted by them. Yeah, because they they were kind of leery of anybody with a college degree coming in there and messing with the process. Sure. So for them to kind of accept me, uh, so I got to work in all the different departments, and then I got my first department to manage in 1988. Okay. So probably the first woman to have a department in operations. Sure. And yeah. So I had processing, what we call processing department. So I worked with the dumping of the whiskey, the filtration, getting it ready for bottling. And so that was a good experience for me. I also, I, yeah, I worked part-time. I worked hourly for a couple of years. And then I went into, you know, I was in the lab. And then I went into management. And being hourly was probably one of the best things to talk about leadership training. It was good for me to see how it felt to have somebody say at the last minute, well, you need to work overtime. Yeah. So I was very careful that I would tell people we may need to work overtime so that they can make plans. Right. So I think it made me a better manager because of that. Sure. 
Yeah, that's huge. That's I, I mean, that's uh, it, it's only now, I think, bo- bubbling to the surface that, um, you know, women in whiskey, um, you know, there's certain names. I know Marianne Eves recently has launched her own brand and mm-hmm. she was highlighted as the I think the first female master distiller, at least in Kentucky. Um, but Sherry, your story is I, <laughs> I don't know if I don't think you've written a book, have you? No, but I'm thinking about it. You should you absolutely <laughs> should. Yeah, you know all of the the audiobooks that you shared with me. You've given me some great, uh-huh. great. I've I've made my way about halfway through all of those. Um, I have to go back and listen to them again a couple times to to capture it. But the fascinating, fascinating stuff, and even some of the things that you know that you shared that have helped me as far as unearthing some of the history of Golden Sheaf and. But your career, your, and I know we haven't even begun to scratch the surface yet, so continue on, please. Well, one thing I, I like to talk about is one of the, when I was in quality control and we worked with R&D, we probably kept anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 barrels that we're running experiments on. Wow. So some of the things that we did, and this was in the early uh, 80s, but I like to tell this one, we took barrels and we took the same wax that they were spraying on apples and we sprayed the barrels with that wax. Sure. Because we were trying to see if we could still have enough um, oxygen interaction for maturing, but we could reduce the angel share. Right. Well, we sprayed those barrels. We had, oh, probably 600. Okay. And of course, all our warehouses at that time were Rick style warehouses. So you kick the barrels. Well, when you kick a barrel that's been covered in wax, instead of going 10 feet straight, it took 90 degree turns, almost wiped out people. We thought we were going to kill our crew of people. So we were so glad that we didn't get the results we wanted because it was so dangerous. But we did that. Then we took some barrels and we actually did shrink wrap. (laughs) Just to see what would affect the angel share. And the yield. Well, then those barrels, you kick those in, they would go six inches because there was no <laughs> friction. So we tried all that. We were doing uh, trying groove barrels. We did the groove barrels back then. And we were finishing in the 90s. We were finishing in sherry barrels for experiments, rum barrels. So I just got such a good education and exposure there. Yeah. That, and and is that work to you? Is that is there ever? Yes. Is it work or is it fun? No, so mine fun. is all fun. All it's fun. all fun. I couldn't wait to go to work. Right. And you know, uh, one other thing is, and I don't want to talk too much, but I want you to continue talking. <laughs> keep on talking. People uh, a lot of times will ask me. Well, they want to hear horror stories about how the men treated me and how hard it was for me. Okay. And I honestly don't have any because I either ignored it or it didn't happen. But I think because I didn't come in this, I'm woman, hear me roar. I'm fixing to be a trailblazer. I just came in and was myself. And I learned from them that I really don't have the horror stories. So I can't say I was in a toxic workplace. I can't say I was mistreated. And I loved what I did. Good. And uh, I think that's a little bit of it, too, is when when you're having fun, it makes everybody else have fun. Sure. And they want to share. 
because I would go to the warehouses and just what the guys. I would go to the distillery. And some days, I would just make sure I got my work done, and I would just go hang out. Yeah. And I probably learned as much hanging out in the workplaces. Right. On the little things. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you're learning from people, like you said, that have been there and know the things, you know, they know certain smells, you know, you're, you're get cutting into the hearts or, you know, you, yes. uh, you know, when to turn the stills on and, and all those things. And, and yeah, you pick up that stuff by learning it. It's not stuff, you know, there's things that you wouldn't necessarily learn from a, from reading a book or being taught in a classroom. Mm-mm. And so, yeah, I imagine that's, you, you were timing wise. It sounds like you got right in the middle of all the good things. And, um, but then you, how long, how long were you at Jack Daniels? I was there, uh, over 31 years. I ended up as, assistant vice president, director of whiskey operations. So I ended up with the distillery and the byproducts, barrel warehousing, charcoal mellowing, environmental quality control and fire protection and fire protection sounds kind of funny but in a place like that having fire protection uh was a challenge ended up moving that i only had it for about a year or two but that was you know a good education sure and learning to be proactive on preventing fires how important it is for the you know there's still a lot of really nerdy boring things but Making sure that your lightning rod protection sure. is working, yeah. right, so that you don't lose a warehouse of whiskey, right. Well, yeah, it's it's happened in the past, and you know, yes. So yeah, being proactive and being able to—it's a lot of whiskey. It's it's mm-hmm. hazardous material, you know. It's, it is. It is. So I'd imagine knowing the ins and outs and the you know the flashpoints and all the the different things and and the environment and how to proactively protect that. Did you ever yes. have any any disasters that you had to no we had uh no i didn't when i was there but you know i when i was in processing department we did have somebody uh cut in on a vent tube okay and the tank imploded we had a fifty thousand gallon tank implode wow and when you're jack daniels even in the this was in the early 90s when you're jack daniels that means the news station comes over and flies over in helicopters Mm -hmm. so your mistake becomes very public it was not mine but i was in the control room when it happened and i was like what was that noise and we were able to repair the tank but we still made the news (laughs) sure yeah it's a big deal locally but thankfully nobody was hurt but that one could have been a disaster but i think because it kind of imploded versus going out that sure uh, nobody got hurt wow so you shared a lot with me um when we were down in kentucky and there was this all very interesting um and gosh you know we go on and on and on but there's one thing in particular that that stood out was and i think um think you had spent a, a good deal of time in the in the role of um as a taster as yes. uh, so ensuring that jack daniels tastes like jack daniels continue yes. to taste like jack daniels and and so i'd love to hear more about that that's it, i find it interesting because my job i'm creating unique blends from batch to batch, yes. batch which is sort of the inverse of what you were doing there but yes. can you Get get deeper into that so people can understand kind of what was involved there. Well, well, one of the things that's almost funny is one of my jobs was choosing the whiskey for um, 
the blends and tasting and sampling. But instead of being a whiskey blender or master blender, my job title was quality control specialist. Okay. So <laughs> it's one of those things that job titles, we didn't think of it then because we weren't thinking about marketing standpoint, but that's what I did. And one of our challenges at a large plant is you want consistency. Right. You've got so many warehouses. We were, you know, e even when I was over that portion of it, we had anywhere from 50 up to 80 warehouses. They've got more now, but I was up to about 80 warehouses. So knowing how each warehouse aged, right. what the first floor did versus the fourth floor, what the first floor versus the seventh floor, uh, was it on a hill? Was it down kind of in a valley? And so you really had to work hard to create that consistent blend. Right. Whereas what you're doing, you could go make a unique blend on the top floor. You could go make a unique blend where we're trying to blend, yep. uh, mingle that whiskey together. So we had consistency. We had a tasting panel. And again, over the years, it varied, but we had anywhere from 20 to 50 tasters. Wow. And some of our best tasters on our panel, uh, they were they could be a janitor, they could be on the bottling line, they could be at the distillery, they could be in processing. So not only did you have your quality control and your trained tasters, a smaller core group, we had this large group because we wanted to see with that many different palettes, right. were we still being able to maintain that consistency? So we had weekly uh, tastings for that on our distillate, we tasted daily. We tasted uh, after the distillery, we tasted after charcoal mellowing. And I probably need to explain, can I go through Tennessee whiskey a little bit too? Please do, yeah. Uh, but it took this group of people, but one of the things that I kind of set, you know, Tennessee whiskey from uh, bourbon, it's always been that way. It's just gotten made official since 2013, the state of Tennessee. The government does not recognize it. Okay. The government really sees us as a bourbon right. because we meet all the criteria. But Tennessee whiskey is distilled under 160. It is over 50, 51% or more corn. Mm hmm it is bottled over a hundred and uh, over 80 proof in the barrel, no higher than 125 proof, no additives and a new oak charred barrel. So we meet the criteria right. of bourbon, right. but we do two other steps. It has to be in Tennessee, by the Tennessee law, and it also has to go through charcoal. And at Jack and the uh, ones in Tennessee are using sugar maple charcoal. Right. And, uh, I think the reason, done a little research, it looks like the reason sugar maple charcoal was chosen is because it was plentiful. Okay. It was easy to get to in our area, and it had the least ash of most of our trees. So that's why it was done. So you take your sugar maple and you cut it into two by two sticks. We call them sticks, uh, four feet long. You stack those alternating and you let those season for about six months. Okay. And when I say season, that's just outside where it's getting sun. It's getting the rain on it that will leach out things that don't need to be there. Right. Then we burn that. We grind it into charcoal and we've got 
a grinder there and a certain mesh so we keep up with the size because you want enough surface area but you don't want it a fine powder right right so we load a what we call a vat and it is six foot in diameter and about 10 foot deep okay of charcoal so wow. the, the vat itself is about 12 feet then we put in the 10 feet of the sugar maple charcoal that we've wow. made and you tamp that down the guys have a tamper and they uh get it in then you start the whiskey going through there so what you first get off it's it's very similar we use the same words at the still your first whiskey off is called the heads mm -hmm. so you put that over to the side because you have to run it through again because it may pick up too many fines mm -hmm. then we go through so we are tasting that whiskey to see when we change out the uh charcoal and okay. it usually can stay for six months or longer okay that was my next question yeah but we're tasting it just to make sure we also check the ph on it so we're keeping up with that so that's the step that sets tennessee whiskey apart and that process actually started in pennsylvania okay and it went from pennsylvania and it was grandma pearson's recipe okay and her family moved to south carolina okay and in south carolina one of my family uh trees the bobos married into the pearson so they moved to lynchburg tennessee okay. into the moore county area and from family documents it was sold to eaton tolly distillery which was a big distillery there in lynchburg and this was prior to jack daniels oh, so wow. it looks like about 825 1825 1830 then they started doing this charcoal uh mellowing they called it charcoal leaching okay. <laughs> it's not very appealable but that's what they call filtration back in the 1800s a lot of times so that's where we started doing it and if you taste have you ever done before and after charcoal mellowing a smell or taste test yeah yeah i have actually it is very distinctive right it takes a lot of the corn notes off right yeah now, real quick what, what's that called is there i've heard that referred to is that the lincoln county process call it the lincoln county process charcoal mellowing and charcoal leaching when i got there the 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 building said charcoal leaching okay. and then the marketing people said no we're not calling it that <laughs> we need a prettier name if we're going to talk we need a better name for yeah. that <laughs> so um lots of distilleries in kentucky use this method it came from pennsylvania so it was used a lot and then after prohibition the only distillery that started this process back was jack daniels okay and jack didn't have any children i'm rambling jack didn't have any children so his nephew lim motlow was already running the distillery with jack and then when jack died uncle Lim took it over so he was my great great uncle i think it is i think he adds another great so that was my uncle so when he started the distillery after prohibition he made sure to add that step back okay. he felt that was that important and uh i also helped with a brand uncle nearest and they put in the same system helped design their distillery and it was a very good lesson for me because being at jack daniels all the capital had been spent okay. so the only cost we had was just making you charcoal and there is a cost to this step sure. but when i was helping design a distillery 
that needed this room and this process, it adds a lot of cost. It was a reminder of the capital investment it takes to add this step in. Wow. So it's, and so nobody's doing it just, what am I trying to say? You have to make a very conscious decision that this is what I believe adds a distinctive taste and quality to my whiskey. Right. Because it, it does require quite a bit of capital. And then you've got your ongoing cost of replacing that charcoal. Right, right. Yeah, and, and creating it, putting it in place. Yeah, I imagine, I imagine there's pretty hefty cost and resources and time and all the things in there. And, it, and it's a commitment, right? I mean, you do it. It is a commitment. Uh, are there? Are you aware of any? I mean, there has to be Tennessee uh, distilleries that don't incorporate that process. There's only one uh, is Pritchard's, and okay. everybody else is is doing that on some level. They may not be in a as a ten foot deep vat, right. but they're going to be doing it. So they do meet that criteria to be able to put Tennessee whiskey on their label. So you have Chattanooga, Tennessee whiskey, you have uh, Old Dominic, and they are doing charcoal mellowing. Okay. Of course, George Dickel does it. The other thing in some of my research I thought was funny is Vanderbilt University, I found an article where one of the chemistry professors was doing a study on this process, and he had his handwritten graphs out on how the pH changed. So... Uh, it was fun to see that they were studying it even back then. Absolutely, yeah. My my business partner Sean, his son is leaving for Vanderbilt next week. I think he's attending law school. Actually, um, see if we can get him to switch to uh, <laughs> distillery studies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's fascinating. It absolutely is, and I love your knowledge. Not only your experience and knowledge and expertise, but your your knowledge. I mean, I can tell I can tell right away that you're passionate about all things whiskey and, and definitely history. I mean, your your wealth of knowledge, history wise, is I, I you, you you need a book. You need there needs to be a Sherry Moore book. You've got incredible. Stories. I've got some stories. I've got yeah, some yes, stories. I think one reason I want to tell the story of Tennessee whiskey and that process, the Lincoln County process, and a little bit about Tennessee. Uh, whiskey history is because i'm not telling it from a marketing standpoint right because i don't work for a company now I'm, i have my own consulting firm i'm going in and helping people so i can honestly tell you the history and i don't have to slant it yeah, <laughs> with a yeah. marketing vibe Absolutely. and for me as a, a consumer in any other market i like to know the facts don't just send me a marketing story i really want to know the truth yeah. It's not going to be a negative towards your product, but I want to know the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and that's just it. There are some embellished stories out there, you know, and that's marketing. Yes. Um, with Golden Sheaf, I know I shared a little bit with you about that, about the backstory and, you know, the, the, the colorful history. And But you, you opened up other avenues for me. You know, I, I love the, the idea of recruiting a historian or bringing a historian on board to to be able to help with that and expand on the already interesting backstory but one of the things that you had shared was about um pro prohibition and how that you know i never really thought about sort of the mindset during prohibition yes. and those that were in the profession that um 
simply walked away from it because of the the shame perhaps that yeah. was instilled upon people you know it's so you know whether it was like religious background or just some of the the negative things that you know led up to prohibition and so it makes sense and that's you know that's kind of what we're we're finding is that there's this big void of okay the distillery um, that produced golden sheaf shut down in 1920 and that was it and the thing that's always intrigued me was why are there not it was a significant <clears throat> part of history especially here it's third largest distillery in the country pre-prohibition it was you know they wow. were generating upwards of 90 percent of state tax revenue <laughs> why did it just disappear and why aren't there buildings or parks or <clears throat> excuse me there's there it's such a significant um story that you know that all the things that the, the amount of money that they contributed you know there was no income tax and and so on and so 90 percent of the state tax revenue you know and i always compare i don't know how accurate this is but com compare omaha to a truck stop back in the day it was kind of a not a lot of people were, were coming here to to set up camp but it ended up being you know a great place for opportunity and so when they connected the railroad and the you know the golden spike the transcontinental railroad opened up a lot of opportunity you know and then the cattle industry really boomed from here you know created an infrastructure to be able to fast move transport things and uh, so that's what happened was the folks that started the distillery pivoted because of prohibition but they had already yes. invested in cattle and land and created the omaha stockyards and um but to simply walk away and not return something that was that significant not return after prohibition was the the lingering question and so you you opened up kind of a whole um you know another pathway of possibilities and you know it kind of looks like yeah there was some shame involved in that mm -hmm. you know that oh nope we we had nothing to do with the spirit industry we <laughs> we're in the cattle industry and that's it you know it just wasn't talked about and that's what happens as time passes 100 years later if nobody's talking about yeah. it yeah nobody's no, talking yeah it's not part well of it. I, I think when you're you're sitting around with your family they're going to tell you about it, the relatives that was a preacher or a doctor but they don't tell you about the relative who's a horse thief right. or a distiller <laughs> especially after prohibition yeah i being raised in tennessee not only are we in the bible belt but we are the buckle of the bible belt right so i think we lost a lot of our history because the family didn't talk about it mm -hmm. because so much of our history is oral in our family and i i think that's a lot of it and then i think people had gone on to new uh professions new careers new companies and to go back and get back into kind of the sin industry yeah it had that stigma that it had a stigma to it yeah absolutely so that, that's, that's one of my theories yeah and it's a, and it's a pretty solid one i you know i've like i said the the audiobooks that you've um, and we'll have to I'll share those with Myron and he can uh, tag uh, tag them, you know, as well. Put put some of those audiobooks out there that talks about prohibition and, and um, history. I mean, I love that. You know, I always mm -hmm. I do these tastings and I, I love talking about history, you know, at least the little that I'm familiar with. And, um, you know, when, when you talk about, uh, you know, the, the Whiskey Rebellion and, and how um you know we just we just want a war but we're broke mm -hmm. you know and how do we become yeah. a superpower without any cash and how do we you know create infrastructure for this new new free world and 
Um, so what do we have a lot of? We have a lot of stills and we, we start to tax those and that, you know, kick out, kicked off the yes. whiskey rebellion. But why did we have a lot of stills? And that's what, you know, I love telling that, mm-hmm. you, you know, the whole, we had stills because, you know, grains have a shelf life and okay. you can convert them to something that you can store and transport and trade. And, um, you know, so getting into that kind of stuff and then even, um, what prohibition was because in grade school in the public school system they just kind of teach you that we just the government decided we should take a break from consuming alcohol and there's more to it yes <laughs> yes a lot more to it well you know people talk about how divided our country is now and going back and reading the books on prohibition and the ken burns you find out this wet and dry was probably one of the biggest divisions our country's gone through. Right. Yeah. And it went on for decades. Right. But by the time they did prohibition, there was so much tension there. Right. And I, until I started reading, I forget which book it is. I'm listening to it now. The call uh, or the last call. Last, the last call. Yep. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yep. That's it. Last call. I'm on chapter six. Um, I had no idea. You know, it, it, it's almost as if somebody just came up with this good idea, you know, like, hey, let's eat healthy or hey, let's not drink. And then boom, every, every you know, shut down production sales of alcohol. And that's it. You know, there's not a lot of detail unless you go digging for it. You mm-hmm. watch a movie about why and how long that movement had been kind of in the works and, you know, how it originated and why and in the division. That's that's huge. So it's, I, I find this stuff interesting and I think a lot of folks do, you know, just during tastings and it's become part of whiskey culture, I think now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why whiskey is becoming more and more popular. You know, the, certainly the marketing around, you know, at Jack Daniels and, and other distilleries, they, people are cashing in on this. I mean, they're not yeah. just building an operational distillery, they're building an experience for people to come in and get their hands dirty and, you know, thieve their own whiskey. And I love it. So I think it's fascinating that you are part of that history. You know, you can. Yeah. yeah. It's for fun for me to been there for the introduction and on the team for doing Jill Jack led the project on single barrel. And it's seeing Lincoln Henderson start angels envy based on some of the research that we had done in the 90s and yeah. then him being so successful uh, is it's been one of the other things i think i told you is we were i was also part of the team where we started studying toasting of barrels and now that's become a big part of the industry right and, and i always compare toasting barrels to i love sourdough bread but it let me have a piece of toasted sourdough bread yeah. when those sugars are released. Right. And so I, I love to see, I was glad I was part of that. And I love to see what that's done. Yeah. And the little bit of the history on that Brown Foreman had always made their bourbon barrels. So they, they didn't buy from outside. They'd always made theirs and they bought some wineries and they decided, well, we're going to make our own barrels. And as we were setting up that cooperage, not that I was part of the cooperage, but as they were setting it up, we got talking this toasted and learning about toasted. And we thought, why don't we try that? Yeah. So I got to be on that team and cool. we were amazed with how much more complexity that toasted yeah. adds to the 
profile. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, one of my favorites is Penelope. They do a great toasted series on their bourbon uh, four grain and it's, it has a unique taste to it that I just love. I just had some last night and it, I, matter of fact, I sent Mike Palladini a little picture. Hey, just thinking about you. Cheers. Yeah. And it's one of my favorites. It's it's, but I love that. I love that. that. And Independent State has taken that on. Of course, Brown Foreman makes barrels only for themselves, but Independent right. State has been good because they've taken on the toasting, and you take. They've got such good. You probably know Andrew from Independent State and the studies that they're doing. It's R and D that's being shared with other distilleries, big and small. So they have served such a good purpose to carry that toasted on and to make it available to all uh, right. of their customers. Yeah. And just the variation on how long you toast and how long you char, right. it's fascinating. to Yeah, if anybody gets a chance to see uh, any of those talks on barrel toasting, you probably, it's fascinating, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's really the point to this podcast. It's. We call it blending bourbon, but it's behind the scenes. I think that's the introduction yeah. behind the scenes of the industry. You know, so Dix and I, are, you know, we share our, you know, day to day kind of the things that go on behind the scenes and um, that you don't think about. But so much goes into that bottle of whiskey that's on the shelf from the labels, the glass, the closures, the everything making the the whiskey and then, the you know, the barrels. So that whole mm -hmm. that whole evolution, that whole life of everything coming together to me is fascinating and, and and yeah, so gosh, that's we were so country there in Lynchburg, you know, not, you know, none of us drink wine, really didn't know anything sure. about wine. And so with the uh, gentleman Jack, we decide our market decides we're going to have a cork. Well, we don't know anything about corks. And we started getting complaints on the gentleman Jack and we compare it to the retain that we had in quality and theirs would taste different. And we had to scratch our head. We finally figured out it was the cork. We were having cork tank just, and this whole time in movies as a kid, when I saw people smelling a cork, I don't. I thought they were smelling the wine. I did not know that when the waiter was doing that, it was to see if the cork was good because he knew if the cork was good, the wine would be good. Okay. So that's what we got such an education. We had the guys from Portugal come over and explain making corks and. That was amazing, you know, just to learn. I don't know where I thought cork came from, but I didn't know it was Portugal, and I didn't know it was from a tree, a cork oak tree. Same, yeah. That's I have no idea. And how we had to really work with them to increase the quality control in their processes to eliminate uh, the TCA and running tests on that. But that was an education is to find out. And now you see corks a lot. But yeah, if you ever get a complaint, I always check your cork. Yeah, same. I, I I'm kind of dumbfounded. The, 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 I always thought also they're smelling it for the. Has the wine good? Yeah, or at least no. I've been smelling it all these years. Yeah, no, <laughs> so. no. It was to see if there's taint in that. Um, okay, I'll have to cork. ask people why. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. A little, little but that was an education we got was because we never you take cork and been used for decades much yeah in uh whiskey now you see cork all the time but at that right. time everybody had a screw top so that was very much you know that was going out there with that cork so with not such good results <laughs> right 
So what's your opinion on on the the artificial uh, non-cork closures? You know, I, I'm more, if you're going to do cork, I'd rather have the natural cork and pay more for the quality. Okay. Now, if you're doing a clear product, then you're going to need that synthetic because okay. you can get some discoloration. Sure. But it's almost... With to me, with whiskey and wine are similar on two things. With whiskey, your best closure really is a screw top. Okay. Now, does it look good? No, but a screw top is your best, or, or ROPP, or your plastic screw top. And in wine, your be- your box wine is really the best system. No kidding. And why is that? But because you don't have the oxidation going on that you okay. do and you don't have to worry about cork tank okay but there is just something so good looking about a cork i know yeah it, it just makes you feel good so i understand the practical but i have to say i like it and i think that's one reason i love prosecco and champagne because i just like to hear that cork pop yeah. <laughs> and there's something about taking a cork out that is just so much more fun right well, yeah, and you'll never the unscrewing see, one. Yeah. yeah, you'll never see a hundred plus dollar bottle of <laughs> bourbon that's got a screw cap on it. No, no, that's interesting. No. You know, so that's just that's one of those things. Everybody mm-hmm. they like it that way because that's how it is. You know, and it's, yes, it's kind of yes. it has that that classy, sophisticated. Uh-huh. You know, so anything that's t- upper tier has a has a cork in it. Gosh, you know, that and you'll have to go stuff. learn about corks because corks is fascinating itself. But now you're getting such higher quality corks than right. you did 30, 40 years ago. They have really increased their quality. So I don't think there's as much chance out there. But I would always advise when I'm working with anybody, do not get the lowest price cork because you're probably going to get the lowest quality. Absolutely. That is where you're going to spend the extra money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's great to know. Cause yeah, you see that, you know, unfortunately you'll pop a top off and it, you know, and then you've got to dig out a yeah. cork or, you know, have to uh-huh. it's in a bottle and, um, or you, you lose it down in the juice and then you've got to strain your, your juice to get yes. the cork, cork pieces out. But yeah, that's one of the things you don't save money on. Right. Yep. Do not cut corners on your, on your cork Mm-mm. and your closure. Mm-mm. Well, Sherry, I, I hate to bring this to an end and I would actually, <laughs> extend an open invitation to you to come back and join us anytime matter of fact i would love to on on another episode um when dixon's back um because i he you know he's just this wealth of knowledge and history and uh, you know all the things so i i feel like there's there's just so much more i feel like i'm robbing our viewers and myself of but I, i'm going to continue to to call and we'll meet up and uh, we I will. Hear, hear more more and more and more and more i think we have a trip to europe planned don't we aren't we going to oh yeah we're going to italy <laughs> that's right we're going to check those corks out over there Absolutely. too. see yeah. how they're going to do i want to hear if they pop just as good over there yes. or better than over here on the prosecco in, a, in italian in italian <laughs> well thank you very much for the gift of your presence here i'm i'm honored that you would take the time to to join us and share just a little bit just a little sliver of of your world fascinating um you are at the top of my 
I am I am your number one fanboy. I want you to know that. So thank you very much. You're very kind. And tell Dixon I have not met him face to face. I don't think so. I want to get to know him. Absolutely. Well, we're planning stuff. I'm um, not sure if you're going to be in in Louisville or Bardstown over the coming weeks or months. I'll be down there quite a bit. Um, we're actually bottling at Bardstown Bourbon Company next week. Um, actually, the next by the time this airs, we might have actually bottled. But uh, yeah. But, you know, there's always events and stuff going on. Um, so look forward to crossing paths soon and hanging out, drinking some more whiskey together. Not sure if you have anything to, to cheers there with, but. I don't. I, oh. Thank goodness I had some water. There I you could, go. I've That's got okay. some bottles back behind me. <laughs> I see that. I am working. Uh, I'm doing consultant work, so I don't really have an office. So I just sure. in somebody else's. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking time. I know you're a very busy woman and. Uh, really appreciate you. We'll be in touch. Sherry, cheers to you. Thank you. We're going to tag all the things and uh, keep you uh, posted about all, you know, the, when we release this and um, look forward to, to sharing it with everybody. Don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, all the things. Ladies and gentlemen, Sherry Moore, thank you again for joining us, Sherry. And uh, we'll go ahead and sign off. Cheers, everybody. Thank you.